Thank you, Tim. Good evening, everyone. If you would, please open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. If, uh, if your Bible is anything like mine, it doesn't naturally fall open to the Song of Solomon. I, uh, I have tape holding the book of Hebrews together, but the song, the song is, is kind of fresh, fresh and crisp in its pages, at least until I started studying it a few months ago. Um, I was talking to different people, and it's interesting. You talk about the Song of Solomon, and you get a lot of different viewpoints. Um, there are people who have studied a lot. There are people who just haven't uh, had opportunity to spend a lot of time in the book. Uh, and there are different, opini- different opinions about it um, and how to study it and how to understand it. It's, it's not like any other book in the Bible. And you can see that right from verse 2. If you look at verse 2, this is Shulamite speaking. She says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There is not another book in Scripture that's going to begin like the Song of Solomon. Right? It, it is unique. And, and one of the things that's interesting, when I talk to different people, one of the questions that comes up is, this is a song about marriage. It's written by Solomon, and Solomon had 700 wives. So isn't it, it doesn't seem natural to be reading a book about marriage from somebody that really had some, some moral failures when it came to marriage. And it's an honest question. It's a question I will attempt to answer. And I'll tell you, there is no dogmatic answer. There is no cut and dry answer to that question. But I will attempt to answer it uh, in a way that, that hopefully is honoring. Um, if you happen to notice the title of my message, I titled it God's Song of Marriage. And I do believe that that's exactly what we have here. This is God's song, right? Second uh, Timothy 3.16 all Scripture is what? It's, it's, right, it's God-breathed. Right? All Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable. Right? So in the, in the grandest sense, we know for sure that if we're reading into the Scriptures, then God placed it there and He had it there for us to learn from it. Right? Um, so with that said, let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll take a look at this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank You again for this opportunity to be here this evening. Lord, you have blessed us again with a day that we can come freely to worship you, uh, to sing hymns, uh, to listen to your word preached. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that we're able to do this. Lord, I I listen to the prayer requests of the people that are going to be visiting with families and friends and neighbors. Lord, we lift them up to you. Lord, we know that your spirit needs to work in their hearts as we need your spirit to be working in our hearts, Lord growing us and molding us and shaping us, Lord. I pray that you would bless our time this evening. Watch over it, Lord, and I do pray that it would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'd start by sharing that my ultimate desire for this evening is that we will know God better, right? That's the goal, that we know God better. We look at his word and that we know him better, uh, especially when it comes to the context of marriage. Um, This message could be directed really against a lot that's going on in our society, a lot of the immorality that's going on in our society, right? Society has been trying to tear apart marriage um, for years. We we have a newly elected Supreme Court justice, a newly appointed, that will not willingly publicly explain what a woman is, and that is the society that we live in. Um, But I would say I'd like to put all that aside, right? Put all the stuff that we can put in our society aside and think about, 
our families, think about our marriages, thinking about our children that may be longing to be married one day. That's where I'd like our focus to be tonight as we look at this particular book. Um, and sort of getting our mind, it's a little bit of this is going to be a little bit of a um, sort of a Sunday school, a bit of a, a Bible study. But just to get our minds aligned, let's go back to the beginning of Genesis and look at God's design for marriage. So right back to Genesis chapter 1. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, you're looking at the creation. We have six times. We see it the first time in verse 4. But there are six times when it says, and God saw the light and that it was good. So six times we see, as God's looking at creation and what he's done, he says, God saw that it was good. We see that in verse 10. In verse 12, it says, God saw that it was good. Same thing in verse 18, God saw that it was good. All the way over to verse 31 of chapter 1. And what does it say there? God, and it was very good, right? God says that his creation and what he's done is very good. As we move into chapter 2, we get to a point where we run into the first time that something is not good, right? And that's something that's not good is that man was alone, that Adam was alone. We see that... um, uh, in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, the Lord, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Right down to verse 20, And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord ca- caused a deep sleep uh, to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Stop it just for a second. For whatever reason, it caught my attention. You can read this again and again. But it caught my attention that God brought her to the man. Right? We think about that when we're, when we're looking at marriage, when we're looking at spouses for our kids, when we're praying for things, that God would bring the right person. Well, here God brought her to the man. Verse 23, And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? We've read it many times. And really the point that I'd like to bring out tonight, just as a reminder, is that all of this has taken place before the fall. Right? The fall has not happened. So this union, this joining of this man and the woman with God is perfect. Right? It's perfect unity. It's a perfect marriage. It's perfect in any way because sin has not entered this marriage yet. Right? Of course, then the fall happens. And at that point, God's design for marriage becomes corrupted. Right? Sin, selfishness, all forms of immorality are used by Satan to break down marriages. And yet, by God's grace, he provided a book that looks at what marital love can look like. Right? And that is what the Song of Solomon is. And again, unfortunately, many of us, I mean, I did, had in the back of my mind the fact of, of Solomon's moral failures. And I felt like that needed to be addressed. So we're going to go through this a little bit, but uh, as I mentioned, in 1 Kings 3, that's where it says that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. 
So my desire is to show why this song is the very first song that Solomon wrote. Right? We read in Kings that he wrote 1,005 songs. And yet this one in the Hebrew is called the song of songs. This is, this is the love song of love songs. Right? So do me a favor, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. And, you know, all of this isn't necessarily relevant, but there's a few things I'd like to show you, and we'll, we'll kind of go through this, hopefully pretty quickly. 1 Kings chapter 4. If you, if you look in Chronicles, you have the lineage of David, and, for, and, and God gave us a lot of the names of wives, David's wives, and a lot of the names of his children. But when it comes to Solomon, we only have the names of three children. We, we read that he has 700 wives, but Scripture only gives us the names of three children. Not making any comment other than that, then that's what Scripture has given us. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 4, um, we have Solomon's officials. And down on, chapter, down on verse 11, it just says, Benedetabab, in all the height of Dor, and then in quotes it says, Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, was his wife. So there we have the name of one of the daughters. And again, this, this isn't totally relevant to the message tonight, but I'm just pointing out that there are three names. Uh, we have the names of two daughters and one son. And if you look over at verse 15, same chapter, Ahimaz uh, in Nephtali, he also married Basemath, the daughter of Solomon. So there we have the two names, the only two names in Scripture of Solomon's daughters. Um, moving from there to chapter 11, so still 1 Kings in chapter 11 we're going to see the name of Solomon's son. Chapter 11, uh, to the end, it's verse 43. So 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 43, and it says, And Solomon slept with his fathers, and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. So there are a couple places where we see his son mentioned, but now we have the name of two of the daughters, and one son, and his son is Rehoboam. Right, so just follow with me. Um, I think this is where, where it really actually starts getting pretty interesting. Continue on to Second Chronicles. So a couple books over, Second Chronicles chapter 9. Give you a second to get there. Second Chronicles chapter 9, and if you're in verse 30... And it says, and Solomon reigned 40 years in Jerusalem over all Israel. Solomon reigned for 40 years in Jerusalem over all Israel. Right? So just remember that. That's, that's the number that I want you to remember is 40 years. All right? Because we're going to continue on um, to chapter 12. So just a couple more pages. Chapter 12, verse 13. And it says, so King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. Right, 41 years old. So if Rehoboam came to be king at the age of 41, and Solomon reigned for 40 years, then Solomon was not yet king when his son Rehoboam was born. Rehoboam was, was one year old when Solomon became king. 
And if you read a little bit further, just, just for point of interest, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which, which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah the Amoritess. So Solomon's wife, or the mother of Rehoboam, was Naamah. So I believe that this song of Solomon could potentially have been written to Naamah before Solomon was king, and it was his first marriage. Right, So we know he had seven other wives, and again, I can't be dogmatic about it, but it appears that there's a very good possibility that this was his very first song, his very first love song that he ever wrote, because it's his very first wife. Right? And it kind of makes sense, and it kind of lines up. And when he wrote the song, he would have had no anticipation or with no understanding of the immorality that would follow. It was written with all the purity of a God-designed courtship and wedding for a time at least, and a marriage as God would have it. That's the way I see the Song of Solomon. Now before we can, you can, before we can actually look at the book itself, we still need to decide how best to understand or how best to interpret this song. And like every other book of Scripture, whether it's written in historical narrative or poetry or proverb or epistle, we need to understand what God meant by what he said before we can rightly apply it to our lives. And this is no different when we look at the Song of Solomon. And again, this is a little bit of a, of a Sunday school lesson, but I think it's important to help us understand how to look at this book. Historically, there's been four ways to study the book Song of Solomon. One was to look at it as if it was a drama, as if it was a play. Another is to look at it as if it was allegorical, and we'll talk about that. A third possibility was typological, like it pointed to something. And the last option is that it's literal, that it is exactly what it says it is. Right? So when it comes to, and I will tell you up front, my, my view is that it's the best way to study this book is that it's a literal interpretation. It is what it is. It's historical. It has historical places. It has events. It has people that are historical. And this is Solomon writing a love psalm to his very first bride. The, the idea of a drama did not last very long. It didn't get a lot of play. Um, Origen and Philo back in the earliest of centuries looked at it. They thought it might have been a play. But there really is no plot. There's no character development. Um, it doesn't look really much like any play would look. But another approach is as allegory. And I would tell you that there are a lot of people who look at this from an allegorical standpoint. Right? So what does allegory mean? Allegory is you say one thing, but you mean something else. Right? The classic example, of course, is Pilgrim's Progress. We have the name Pilgrim. We have worldly wise men. The entire book written by John Bunyan is designed to be an allegory. Um, where, again, you say one thing, but you actually mean uh, something different. Um, allegories are not foreign to Scripture, right? Scripture does have allegories in it. If you're in the Song of Solomon, go over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll look at one of these. <clears throat> in Isaiah chapter 5, it has what's titled the parable of the vineyard. But it's an allegory, and I think you'll see that. So let me read chapter 5 of Isaiah. 
Isaiah, under the inspiration of God as a prophet of God, says, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why? When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. Verse 7 is the key to understanding this allegory, this parable. Chapter 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Right? So Isaiah explains it to us. Otherwise, we'd have the opportunity to make the vineyard really anything we want it to be. Right? That, that's what can happen if you take everything to be an allegorical approach. You have the tendency to want to make it mean something that you want it to mean. Isaiah doesn't allow that. Isaiah tells us what it means. We do not have that when it comes to the Song of Solomon. There is nobody, there's no other scripture that looks to it and explains, well, Solomon said this, but he meant this because of this, and I'm explaining. Right? We don't have that. That's just a brief overview of what allegory can look like. I would say that, you know, for the Jews over the centuries, that's all they did, right? They looked at it as an allegory of God's love for Israel. Does God love Israel? Yes, of course, it, of course he does, right? Of course he did. But that's not what the song about. They gave it no credence to be exactly what it is, which is a, a marriage song. They looked at it simply as an allegory. There are Christian churches that do the same thing. There are Christian commentators that do the same thing. Um, uh, quickly looking at, at typological, again, something that's a type. It's something that's looked at in the Old Testament, and it's seen differently in the New Testament. Uh, a, a good example is, is Romans chapter 6, where, where Paul says that, that Adam is a type of Christ, right? We, we, that's, that's a type that's legitimate. But what you need is you need uh, an inspired author in the New Testament to explain or give fuller meaning to the Old Testament, right? That's legitimate. They were inspired. They can do that. The Song of Solomon is never quoted in the New Testament. So we don't have any inspired New Testament author that says, this is it, but I'm going to give you a fuller meaning. We don't have that. So that's what you put all this together. People say, this is where I land, right? This is where I land. That the best way to look at the Song of Solomon is to look at it literally, Look at it for what it is. It's a love psalm. It's a, it's a love poem. Solomon to his first bride. Right. If we take a look at this, I'll give you just a quick example of, a, of something I read. Um, in, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse, verse 6, 
This is Shulamite speaking. She says, do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. She's saying my skin is dark. It's almost black. And there are commentators that will say that blackness is sin in the church. You can make it mean what you want it to mean if you don't have a good hermeneutical approach to understand what it means. Right? But who could argue with them? That's what they think they see. Right? There's, there's also no scripture necessarily to argue against it. But again, that's what we have. We have what I believe to be the breast approach, which is looking at it literally. All right. All right. So that's, that's my introduction into the Song of Solomon. Um, as I mentioned, I believe this, this is a, a story that's being told. It's a story of pure God-designed, intimate relationship. And this, this, what is written in this book, is only proper inside the covenant of marriage. This is not proper outside the covenant of marriage. This is all about God's design, the way he designed it before the fall. Right? It progresses from courtship to the actual marriage ceremony uh, to challenges faced by couples after marriage. Uh, and just one, maybe one final point that I find interesting is that as I started studying the book, it's a book written by Solomon. I expected to be the predominant voice in this book to be Solomon speaking. And that's not the case. He wrote it, but he wrote it from the perspective of his wife. The vast majority of who's speaking in this song is Solomon's wife, which I just, I, I find that interesting. Um, Okay, so um, I keep saying Shulamite. Uh, we see that in chapter 6. That's where we learn her name. The bride of Solomon uh, is Shulamite. Uh, this is the name given to Solomon's bride. The name Shulamite could be based on where she's from. She could be from a town called Shunem, and that's why she's called Shunamite. Um, or the term Shulamite in Hebrew is the feminine construction of the name Solomon. So it could be like saying Mrs. Solomon by saying Shulamite. Which again, this is interesting. It, it doesn't really matter. The book calls her Shulamite, the bride of Solomon. Um, and as we look in the book itself, there are three points of application. Right? There's three points of application that I would like to focus on tonight. Uh, the three points of application is that we will see the importance of character. When we're looking at marriage, when we're looking at potential marriages, there's the importance of character, there's the importance of caution. And there's the importance of commitment. So let's just start by looking at chapter 1. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verses 1 through, uh, through 7, maybe through verse 8. It says, The song of songs, which is Solomon's, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy. For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks 
of your companions. There's a break there, but Solomon answers the question. She asked him, where does he pasture his flocks? And, and chapter 8 answers that question. If you yourselves do not know most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Right, so <clears throat> that's the beginning uh, of this book. And if you notice back in verse 2, she says, for your love is better than wine. The first thing I recognize here is this is a wedding ceremony. And to have this in context, the wedding itself is in chapter 3. This is sort of thinking backwards. This is, they're sitting at the banquet table. The wedding is already taking place, but they're at the banquet table. And they're sitting together, right? Like we would anticipate any wedding. After the, after the ceremony, there's a, there's a meal, and they're sitting at the, at the banquet table. So that's where we are. That's the context of where we are. And Shulamite is kind of telling us what she's thinking. This is the thoughts that she's having. For your love is better than wine. The festivities that happen, you may recognize that the the Jewish festivities were big. They were boisterous. They were loud. There was a lot of joy that was taking place. And she's sitting there saying, no, your love is better than this. Your love is better than the wine. Your love is better than the festivities that are taking place around me. Um, And she says, your oils have a pleasing fragrance. We we can understand this, right? She, she's like saying your cologne smells nice. She's sitting next to her, her husband. She's just been married, right? And this is the, this is the table that they're sitting at. And, and she's telling us what she's thinking. She says your cologne smells nice. And then I think the, the very first application about character comes here in verse 3. She says your name is like purified oil. oil therefore the maidens love you. His name is in reference to his character. And it's beyond just his outward appearance and the fact that he will soon be king. Right? It's reflecting his inner person. When we say the name of the Lord, the name we're saying, we're, we're encompassing all of what the Lord is. And I believe that's what Shulamite is saying here. Your name is better than purified oil. Your character is exactly what I would want to be for my husband. Right, so I would ask us a similar question: What are the character character traits that define a young man of God today? We might ask: Are they demonstrating a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? Right, we ask those questions: Are they spending private time in God's Word? Are they spending private time in prayer? Right, we're looking for their character. We're looking for a changed heart. Right? That's the character that we're looking for. Are they responsive to the word of God? When God exposes a need to change, how do they respond? Maybe they need to be less focused on, on worldly desires, more focused on pursuing God. Pastor this morning looked at the book of James. Are they desiring to be doers of the word and not just hearers? Right? We would look for that. We would look for that for our, for our daughters. We would look for that for our sons to be that putting in the effort to, to have godly character? Is there an ongoing repentance over sin? Right? They've got to have repentance over sin. Otherwise, there's a question of whether their heart's been changed. And again, every young man needs to put effort into developing godly character. And that's, that's what will touch the heart and the mind of the brides and the brides-to-be. And that's what, Shulamite, that's what I believe Shulamite is saying when she says, your name, Solomon, is like purified oil. In verse 
three in, in the second half of that, it says, therefore the maidens love you. And it matters what other people think. Right? If you're considering a potential spouse, you should be asking people whom you respect what they think of this person. You know, have, they, have they noticed anything that's concerning? Are there any character flaws that I'm not recognizing? The point here is to listen to those whom you trust. And that's what she's saying. The maidens also recognize that your character is purified. You have good character, Solomon. Looking at verses 5 and 6, it says, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy. For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards. But I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Again, this is poetry, right? She's saying that she recognizes that compared to the daughters of Jerusalem, that she is very dark and and almost with black skin because she's had to work outside tending her vineyards. Right? We will see sometimes maidens are another voice. Sometimes it's the daughters of Jerusalem. Essentially what they are, these are eligible Young ladies that are living in the city. They're living in Jerusalem. So she's been living in the country. She's been working the vineyards. And she's saying, I know my skin's dark. You know, I know yours isn't because you, you've been living in the city. But she's not, she's, she may be a little conscious of it, but she is not pushed aside from that. She is, she is strong, strengthened and she is strong in who she is. And that's exactly who God would want her to be. Right? Um. In verse 7, it says, Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pass your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? At this point, what we're recognizing is in this early part of their courtship, she has no idea Solomon is about to be king. She has no idea. She sees him as a shepherd. He's probably out uh, in these distant towns. We don't really know why. Um, he... He could have any reason, but for whatever whatever it is, he's not putting on an air of, I am about to be king. She doesn't recognize him. She sees him as somebody who's pastoring flocks. Where do you make it lie down at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Solomon answers, but he doesn't answer very well. He kind of skirts the question. He says, if you yourselves do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pastor your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. So he kind of answers, but he doesn't really officially answer. And in verse 9 and 10, Solomon begins to share his, his feelings towards this Shulamite person. Verses 9 and 10 say, To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. Solomon is taking notice of her and he's letting her know. Right? That, that is a good thing and that is proper for him to be doing. He is paying attention, and he's starting to share his heart with her. Now, turning over to chapter 2, it be- continues with the bride describing how she admires her husband. But I want to I look specifically at verse 7. Right? The, the second point of application that I think is important as we look at this book is caution. Right? It is caution. So I'm going to start in verse 4, and I'm going to read down through. Verse 4 says, He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. 
Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles over the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Right? Sulamite has just said in verse 5 that she is lovesick. And this love clearly is a powerful emotion. She is warning the daughters of Jerusalem to not allow themselves to fall in love prematurely. And why do I say that? The NASB has in verse 7, it says that you will not arouse or awaken my love. Right? That word my is added in. Um, I think it's um, maybe the King James. I wrote it down. Maybe it's the ESV. doesn't have my. And it also, uh, it says until she pleases. Well, that pronoun she pleases uh, in, the, in the Greek is thalese. It's third person singular. So it could be translated he, she, or it. And the SV translates it as it. And I think that makes much more sense in its context in this particular piece. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. What she's warning them from is from giving their heart away too soon. She just said she's lovesick. It's a powerful emotion. And she's warning them. You, you, you won't be able to control it if you give away your heart too soon. And this admonition is given two more times in the Song of Solomons. It's given in, in chapter 3, verse 5, and it's given in chapter 8, verse 4. Right? So this is an important point, and she's saying, be cautious. Don't give your heart away. So, so far in the song, is primarily dealing with the courtship and the time of relationship. And if we turn over to chapter 3, verse 6, is where we see the wedding. Chapter 3, verse 6, is the wedding day. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. It says, what is this, again in the NASB, I'm going to talk about this in a second. It says, what is this coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. And stop right there just for a second. So just for context, the traveling couch, you know, we, we, we picture these, this, these kings or this king to be uh, with all the men carrying this, this carriage, this, this almost building that's on top, and, and he's in it, and he's had this, this traveling couch built for him. Right? So the, the, the word that I, that I looked at is the very first word. It's, it's the word What? Because there are a number of translations that don't translate it what. They translate it as who. Right? Um, it's aute. It could be translated who. It could be translated as what. So the verse can read who. Um, I think King James and NIV. So you can translate it that way, but, but do we have the right to do that? Right? And again, we're looking at hermeneutics. We're trying to understand properly how to look at these words. And if you just turn over briefly to chapter 8 verse 5, we're going to see this exact same expression again. This time, translated as who? Chapter 8, verse 5. It says, who is this coming up from the wilderness? 
Same, same idiom. It's, it's an idiom. It's a phrase. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved. So here clearly you can only translate it as who. It's a person. It's Shulamite. She's the one that's leaning on her beloved. Right? So why am I putting so much effort into this back in, back in chapter 3, verse 6? Because it completely changes what we're seeing happen. I'm going to read this in its entirety now. Chapter 6, verse 3. It says, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant. Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it, all the mighty men of Israel, all of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. So, so what we have here is we have the bridal procession of bridal processions. Solomon has sent this traveling couch with 60 mighty men to this distant small town to pick up his bride to bring her into Jerusalem. Right? And it's just a cool picture. Right? It's, just, it's just fun. We, we go to weddings. We, we watch the processions come in. This is an amazing procession. And that's why all of this plays into the fact that this is Solomon's very first marriage. Um, it's an exciting time. And he's writing this to his bride. And, and why do I say, we say that she's being brought into Jerusalem? Chapter 4 and its first verse. This is Solomon speaking. She comes into town. He sees her for the first time. It's their wedding day. And he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Right? He's seeing her for the first time. They're bringing, her, bringing them together for their wedding day. And all of this has taken place. And it's, a, it's just an, it's an exciting time. And let's not forget, this is, this is God's love song of marriage. He's even orchestrating these events so we could have them this way and read this way and written this way. He's orchestrating the events to take place exactly the way he wants it so he can give us exactly the song of songs that he wants us to have. So we've, we've looked at the importance of character. We've looked at the importance of caution. And thirdly, there's the importance of commitment. Right? So turn over to chapter 5, and I'm going to read in verse 2. Things have gone well so far. They've had, they've, it's gone well through their courtship. Their relationship continued to be strengthened, and it was a great wedding and a honeymoon, we could say. But challenging times will come. And there isn't any of us that are married that do not recognize that challenging times will come in your marriage. Right? In 5, 2, and 3a, I read, I, have come, um, I, will, I was asleep. This is Shulamite speaking. right? Five, chapter 5, verse 2, Shulamite is speaking. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. And then, and, oh, I'm sorry, that was, that part there was, was Solomon speaking. The voice my beloved. He, Solomon says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. 
And this is how Shulamite answers him. Right? She's not totally too interested. She says, I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? Right? She's not seeing things quite the way Solomon is seeing them. Right? They're having a disagreement. What, is, what happens? Solomon says, fine, I'm leaving. Right? I'm leaving. It's, it's sinful, but that's what, that's what he does. He says, I'm leaving. Verse 4, my beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were aroused from him. This is Shulamite speaking. I rose to open to my beloved and my hands were dripping with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. And you can imagine her heart is broken at this point. She, know what, she knows what's happened. They've had this disagreement. They did not see things eye to eye. And Solomon left. And again, this is this poetry, right? We, 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 we understand it. We get the point. And then she says, but he did not answer me. I called to him. Okay, so she leaves. Verse 6, I opened my, to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and he had gone. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I didn't find him. I called him but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. And now she speaks to the daughters again. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what, will you, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. Well, what kind of beloved is your beloved, they ask, O most beautiful among women. What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? They've had this argument they didn't agree on something. Solomon leaves, and now she's, she's thinking about her husband. She's thinking about him, verse 10. My beloved, and she's explaining it this way, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam. Banks of sweet scented herbs. His lips are like lilies dripping with liquid, liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So you can see she's pouring out her heart. She's thinking about her husband. She, she knows that this disagreement is not right. She wishes it had never happened. And of course, there's a commitment. If we look down in chapter 6, verse 4, they're back together. Solomon says, you are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as any army with banners. They are, they are back together. I skipped verse 3, but I wanted to read chapter 6, verse 3. It says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Right? That is the commitment. And I think we would all agree that that's the commitment that we need to have in our marriages. You know, we're going to see that this is not a fairy tale love song where 
they ride off into the sunset. Right? God gives us true truisms. He gives us lessons that we need to learn, that it's right. Yes, the sin entered. Yes, this thing happened, but it was not right. And they came back together. And that commitment is essential uh, in a marriage. So we have character, we have caution, and we have commitment. And there's, there's probably a, a lot more that I could, maybe that I probably should say uh, in this book. But I'd like to end with this. Just turn over to the last chapter. It's chapter 8. I'm going to look at the very last two verses in chapter 8. Last two verses in chapter 8. And what we're going to see here is that this book continues with a bit of tension. Again, like I said, they're not riding off into the sunset. Right in some fairy tale love song that's written from Hollywood. This is, this is God's word, and he's teaching us. In chapter 8, verse 13, he says, Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Shulamite is still longing to hear his voice. She needs to hear it. She has a need that's not being fulfilled. And she's telling it right here at the end of this book. Hurry, my beloved. You can, you can see it. You can sense it. You can sense that the tension is still there. Hurry, my beloved. It does not end with false demonstration that marriage will ultimately fulfill every need that we have. Because marriages will not fill every need that we will ever have. Right? We are sinful. We make mistakes. At times, we don't recognize the needs of our spouses the way we should. We catch ourselves being focused on self rather than on their needs, her needs or his needs. There's the pain that is felt by those who have lost their spouse and the massive hole that that can leave in their heart. The point is that we will never have our ultimate fulfillment in anything this world has to offer. And that includes our marriages. Our ultimate fulfillment can be found only in one place. It can be found only in one person. And we know who that is. That is in Jesus Christ. That is where our ultimate fulfillment comes from. We are complete only in Christ. Ultimately, the Song of Solomon does point us to Christ. Not because of some allegorical message where every detail symbolizes Christ. The bond of marriage is strong and it is good, but many times it will leave us wanting more. We can only be fully satisfied in the love of Christ alone. And I'd like to end just by reading a short passage of Scripture. If you would, please turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And I just want to read this. I just want this on our, on our minds and on our heart as we close tonight. Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly 
beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your, your word is precious to us. We grow in our understanding of who you are in your perfections, in all that your name entails. Lord, and you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. But I pray that you would bless our marriages, you would bless our young people that might be aspiring to one day be married, to recognize that this is a gift from you. May they shun the foolishness of the society around them. May you give them the strength of the Spirit working in them to stand strong in what is true and what is pure and what is right. For their good and your glory, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.